Welcome back, everybody, to the Uncensored CMO. You are in for a treat in this episode. Now, one of the best, most respected academics in marketing theory on the planet right now is Professor Jenny Romaniak from the Ehrenberg Bass Institute. She is none other than co-author of How Brands Grow 2, which she wrote with Byron Sharp. Uh, she's also author of Distinctive Brand Assets and most recently has just launched a brand new book called Better Brand Health. Now, it really is a fantastic read. Now, you have to put your thinking caps on. You have to pay attention, ladies and gentlemen. It's not necessarily the easiest to read, but it is well, well worth it. Uh, she covers so much ground from the laws of marketing to the metrics that matter to how you properly measure your brand equity. It is really worth getting hold of. I was delighted when Jenny said yes to meet me on the Uncensored CMO and talk through the book. It's a really great conversation full of great wisdom. So without further ado... Let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Jenny Romaniak. Jenny, it's great to see you. Great to be here. Well, congratulations, firstly, on the, well, the, the book's only just come out, hasn't it? But already I notice it's top of the charts in Amazon. So that must feel pretty good. Yeah, it has come from some unintended consequences, though, because there's a scam now. So watch out. If you do go to, to buy it, don't buy the version that has Victoria Penn or any other name on it. Because if you do that, well, maybe you might want to after I tell you what you get if you get that. If you do that, you get basically a bad version of my cover and a soft porn novel inside. No way. Yeah, people have told me. So we're trying to take them down when we see them. So if you do see them, let me know. But if you do inadvertently (laughs) order it, yes, you can get your money back on Amazon. But unless, of course, you really like the book. But it does mean when people tell me that they enjoyed reading my book and they learned a lot from it, I do sometimes have to clarify. (laughs) So what, what actually did you learn? Just to get that out straight. That you, you certainly put in the all PR is good PR to the test on that one, aren't you? <laughs> I just can't. I mean, we, our publishers never had it. We've never had it before. It was just really weird. Just went, of, of all the books to scam, I just never thought this would be it. I mean, you know, some sort of, you know, crime novel or self-help book, something like that. Yeah. I could totally understand. This one? It was a weird choice, I would have strange, thought. strange, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, oh, yeah well. so there are some unintended there you go. consequences. <laughs> Note to the audience, uh, just check. Well, it's great to, great to meet you and great to be doing, uh, you've been doing a number of podcasts as well to support the, uh, support the launch book, which is brilliant. What's the one question you haven't been asked? Probably the one question I haven't been asked is what of what you've learned about how brands grow has been most useful to you? Oh, that's a good one. It's funny, isn't it? Because we often don't take our own advice. It's like doctors, isn't it? Yeah. So how do you you think we have a red book that is how brands grow? (laughs) It's a good example of someone not taking their own advice. Hey, Byron. But yeah, I mean, what's the most useful thing is to realise that a lot of my job is publicity and not persuasion. Um, And that goes back to the Ehrenbergian School of How Advertising Works, that advertising basically is about a refreshing and reinforcing memory structures, building them occasionally, but largely just letting us know what's going on. It's not about convincing us of something that we were wrong and that we believe in something else. And it's easy in an academic field in particular to get the idea that you have to persuade somebody because they're fully informed and so you have to give them evidence to overcome but there's two things I've learned one is that a lot of academics aren't fully informed and when you actually do probe them as to why they believe what they believe it's very scant evidence underpinning it and secondly most of the time people don't realize there's an alternative view to the somewhat comfortable normative things they've been told. So, it's, you know, it's nice to believe we're building loyalty and that people should love our brand and things like that. Those are nice, comfortable concepts that we're, you know, in real life, we want people to be loyal. We want people to like us and love us and things like that. So it's natural to transfer them. And until you hear there's a different way, I kind of understand why you would believe why wouldn't that be the way to build brands if that's mm. the way I'm living my life. Yeah, and so once I realised that a lot of my job is about just publicising that actually there is an alternative view and maybe some of the things that you hold now, you might not hold them that dearly. You just don't know that there's a better way to think about things. And that's rings so true. Something I'm always surprised about, and I've done a number of different marketing roles in my career and, you know, depended on your books, you know, throughout my career. 
And I'm always quite surprised when I go and meet new teams, you know, how few people actually have read, have read the books. And I'm always quite shocked. So in, in, you know, maybe because I'm you know, quite overexposed to your work and familiar with it, I kind of go, oh, of course, everyone, you know. And then it's always quite a surprise to me, you know. So I suppose it's almost putting your light buyer and non-buyer kind of, you know, mm-hmm. advice to use as well, isn't it? You know, in terms of broad reach and, and getting the word out there. Yeah, yeah. And just also remembering that people who don't think the way you do are not necessarily, haven't, haven't, thought about it and rejected it they just just you know the, the ideas are not mentally available so all of those things ring true when I try to communicate to people as well and the few times I have tried to probe people to give me good answers for why they believe what they believe it had it, it's not ended well for them so and it's that's taught me that you know <laughs> we'll have to do a challenge that, Jenny series won't we <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> But um, no, no, it's true. Actually, I mean, it, what I found as well in my in my career is that, particularly client side, you know, brand managers are just trying to get on with the job and survive, mm-hmm. aren't they? And I always encourage any teams that I've run is just, you know just do the reading because there's so much good evidence out there about how mm-hmm. marketing works. And I suppose a lot of people think you know marketing's all sort of you know fluffy and whatever else, but there's so much good evidence there, and you don't need to. And it also the other thing is partly why I do the podcast really is it. It doesn't take long just to kind of read read up on it and mm-hmm. find out that there is good evidence and it will put you in good stead. Yeah, I mean, we don't have to fake it till we make it. We can actually mm. just make it based on evidence. Well, before we get into the book, and, and, and uh, very excited to talk a bit more about, you know, what was behind the book and some of the many, many good bits of advice there is. Um, I, I put a post out on LinkedIn and I got a ton of people asking questions. And actually, not that many of the questions related to the book. But anyway, but more, you know, you, your work more broadly, particularly on distinctive assets. We're talking there we'll about distinctive assets. I'll quickly give you a, a few quick fire questions if I can. So this one from Hadi and said, can you have too many distinctive assets in the same place? I mean, I, I, Presume you might be thinking about an ad or a packaging or something. Is, can you have too many? Well, you can have too many as a brand because we have to remember that the natural state of memory is to decay. And so you are always keeping distinctive assets fresh as well as building them. So it's not like you build a distinctive asset, it's there, you don't have to do anything anymore. You actually have to use it and you have to keep building it amongst new category buyers coming in there because it might be a shock to everybody, but there are some people who don't know that just do it means Nike and they have to be taught that. Now, in terms of a piece of communication, can you have too many distinctive assets in there? To a certain extent, yes, if it compromises the ability to build memories because you don't have anything else, but... I've not seen that be a problem that overbranding has been an issue for ads. And particularly when you do it with distinctive assets, because they are more interesting than just the brand name, you can do it in a way that's very creative. So if I was going to overdo something in an ad, the branding would be one of the areas I go, well, if I have to overdo something, because if I overdo creative Nothing gets processed, it just grabs attention. If I overdo the messaging, it doesn't land in the right part of memory. But at least if I overdo the branding, I've activated the brand, which because of the way memory works and we have a spreading activation that goes through the links, has at least maybe refreshed a couple of other memories that when people see an ad for the brand and only the brand, then they might still think of some of the things that the brand is well known for. And it does a little bit of memory building as well as brand building. So, yeah. yeah. So, that makes complete sense. No, I, I get that. Yeah. Most people, I think I speak to, are in danger of not having enough distinctive oh, God, assets. Yeah. So, we, 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 we're way beyond the point of that being a problem on average, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you can have some. And, and sometimes I find that people overestimate their distinctive assets because they mix the vehicles of the assets with the assets themselves. So, they'll go, they'll actually have a, say, a color combination, but they'll count the colour combination on pack, the colour combination in advertising, the colour combination on the social media site as three different assets. It's like, no, it's actually just one asset. You're just executing it in different ways. So that's where some people overcount the number of assets they have because they don't understand what is really the asset. Makes sense. Now, linked to that question, Richard asked, should a distinctive asset be linked to an association with the brand? And he actually used your owl as an example. So the question to you was, would it have worked as well if it was a parrot? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not a parrot because they're known for copying things yes. and being as an author. There you <laughs> so, go. There we go. So, or maybe that was the whole point of the parrot. It was a very clever way of putting it. The funny thing is that I had nothing to do with the owl. 
we had a reason for developing the owl that was more from a sense of having a visual image that was not our university symbol. We wanted something else out there. And so I did reach out to commercial manager Elka and said, how did we get the owl? Where did that come from? Because I saw that question or something like it and realised I had no idea what the answer was. And apparently, yes, they did actually choose it because of wisdom so it was chosen because of wisdom I had but I had nothing to do with it would it have worked to been anything else probably I would say yes because you think about it how many distinctive assets work irrespective of meaning and when you look at that I don't want you to think wisdom I want you to think Ehrenberg Bass Institute and if we do our job well you're not thinking wow that looks wise and quite frankly she kind of looks a bit startled rather than wise. So, <laughs> I, I mean, I think if we were really going to go for a wise owl, might have put glasses on it or something like that. Brilliant. And, and it does. And, and what, one of the things actually I noticed is with your new book is how similar the distinctive assets are obviously to the previous book about mm-hmm. distinctive assets, which I was very relieved about. A few viewers, listeners, did, did notice that Oxford have changed their logo in between editions, which I thought mm-hmm. the eagle-eyed have noticed that. <laughs> well, I have nothing to do with that. <laughs> Indeed. But yes, we got a few... Once they've read the book. <laughs> once the first round of cover concepts, they actually took inspiration from all the different books. And I went, no, 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 no. Building distinctive assets, I want it to look like its sister, sibling, whatever. And then they came back with a few versions and that this one was my favourite out of them. Very good. Well done. Can I ask the question, what's the best way to measure a distinctive asset? Well, there, so this we had published in the Journal of Advertising Research and it's basically through taking the asset out of its context and bringing it down to what it essentially is and then seeing if without prompting people it evokes the brand now you have to give some category context to it because otherwise it's too hard to retrieve from memory we access our memory through a cued retrieval process and if we don't have context it's it's just cognitively too hard you don't get useful responses but you want a category descriptor that is you know relatively broad and then you ask you know what what when you expose it what brands come, and that's how you are able to get a couple of things. You're able to get the two key metrics that we talk about, fame, which is the proportion of people that link the brand to the asset, and uniqueness, which is how much you own the asset versus competitors coming out as well. And so we tested things like if you provide the brand name, what's the difference if you queue from the brand to the asset so in the journal of advertising research article we actually tested four different approaches brand queued asset queued prompted response and unprompted response and this approach was first of all the hardest in terms of scores and the reason that's important is this is really you're wanting something to replace your brand name You don't want to take any chances with that because you have a perfectly good brand name that can do the job. Secondly, you've got the most competitor responses, which seems odd that when you prompt for brands, you actually get fewer competitors than when you do, but it just seems to free up people's minds to just tell you what they have. It doesn't then, if you prompt, you end up with inflated scores, particularly for fame, and we documented that using some fake brands and found out that it was about 20 percentage points you can get and higher fame if you prompt, which is actually pretty dangerous when this is something that you want to replace a brand name. So we like it because it has its risk averse and it gets you the best sense of competitor linkages. And those two things mean that it's a very powerful approach. And even using that approach, we have ones that get 100% fame, 100% uniqueness or, you know, a roundabout. So if you've got a strong asset, it will still cut through, even though we're deliberately making it harder for it to succeed. Imre asked an interesting question. That I, I've, I've noticed matters quite a lot, which is, does the time frame in which you measure make a difference? And particularly for different categories. I'm thinking if you buy a car, right, you, might, you know, you might buy a car every three years, you might buy a chocolate bar every week, if you may anyway. <laughs> so, you know, does the frequency of consumption of the particular product category dictate how you might want to set your time frames for tracking, for example, in terms of looking at frequency of use, for example? Okay, so there's two different types of 
impact of time train. So first of all, when you're collecting your buying and category usage metrics, for some categories, you have to set timeframes for that. And so when you're talking about chocolate, because it's a repertoire transaction market, to can be considered a buyer, you have to go, well, you have to have done that behavior in some reasonable time frame. And that's why in those categories, we don't just talk, we don't really talk about non-buyers, we talk about non-very light buyers, because they're people who might have bought, because non-buyers can be people who will have bought, but outside of the time frame. When you're talking about tracking timeframes of do you do it every month, every quarter, every year, that's a bit of a, well, I would start with the premise of once a year and then think about what's the value of doing it more frequently. When might I want to do that? You might want to do it more frequently than that if you have something that's perhaps highly seasonal because you can adjust for seasonality, but there are some things whereby you might want to know more about in high season versus low season, et cetera. If you've got a really heavily advertised category because then memories are more likely to be changing, Still not going to be like rapid overnight. I mean, the, the the idea of doing it, say, here I'm talking increasing frequency to say every six months. I'm not talking about every month. At that level of every month and continuous tracking, I don't see a good argument for that, not based on how robust memories are. And so is there a case for doing it less frequently in a year? I think that becomes harder because then it becomes harder to actually make it actionable from there. So I, I see tracking as basically point in time, putting a stick in the sand and go, everything we've done in the time period since we last tracked, what long-term effect has that had on memory? So we're getting a read now and then we're setting ourselves up for the next year to again give everything the best chance it has to, in a year's time, had a long-term effect on memory. And so to me, tracking is not about um, these little fluctuations of, oh, we're on air a bit, so we jump up a bit. That to me is just, I don't know, you know, when people gold detect, like beep, 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 yes, we're doing stuff type of thing. You actually want to know if long-term memories have changed. You actually need to give time for your marketing to work. Yeah. A, a really good example of that, actually. I was, I was managing one of the largest energy drink in the UK. And I was looking at the data and it, it suggested that we had in, in a year, in 12 months, we had 40% new buyers. And I'm like, sense team, that can't be right. I mean, mm-hmm. what's going on here? I mean, like 40%, that'd be like every year, you know, within a three years, we'd have got everybody sort of thing. So I just said, can you just reset the data over three years? And what we found is that our penetration went from 26% to 46%. Incredible, right? But 20% of UK population bought this less than once a year yep. and more than once every three years. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like mega light buyers. I was astonished. It's quite profound, actually, because it really does change. Mm-hmm. Um, well, a how many people you're addressing in your marketing, you know, and, and how many of them are, you know, very very light users. It was, it was incredible. Yeah. It was- yes, we did a report for our corporate sponsors on this. We called them super light buyers, where they documented the people who bought say once in five years and once more often. So they didn't buy when twelve months, but they bought if you took over a five year period, and. It's important too to understand that that reshapes what you think about non-buyers because I still think it's a problem that a lot of people think of non-buyers as there's a reason why they don't buy. But when you understand that a lot of them are very light buyers and a lot of them don't have any reason why they don't buy, they just didn't think of you, it reshapes how you look at acquisition and the potential to grow by penetration. It no longer feels like a whole heap of hurdles that you've got to go on and a whole heap of convincing and persuasion you've got to do. It's actually just getting out there and, and hitting them with stuff. Yeah, it makes complete sense. It really, really does. And we'll, we'll get into a bit more as we talk about the book as well. Um, Emmeline asked, if you're a startup brand or you've got limited budgets, are there any ways you can do brand tracking on a small budget? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be that complicated. Emmeline, I've actually put a questionnaire on my website that you can download and use that basically just has the basics in there. Now, you can make it more complicated if you want to. You don't have to. Yeah. So I actually don't. And given the availability of online panels nowadays that you can easily access and most of the analysis that I, well, all of the analysis that I'm suggesting can be done with a very basic analysis package and a good use of Excel. So yeah, it's very easy to do it. Yeah. Just don't get caught up in all the crap. Good. Well, I'll put a link to the a link in the show notes to download. That'd be brilliant. Um, right. Last question before we jump into the book. So Calais asks, what's the biggest insight you've uncovered that challenges conventional marketing wisdom? 
Yeah, it's, and it's a difficult well, one to ask because you, it's sort of like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So I'm not sure I'm the best person to judge that. Because well, maybe maybe I'll ask a different way then. Is there something you've uncovered that has, that has got really surprised people? That they that has had the biggest reaction in terms of oh I didn't realise that was the case. Again, it's really hard to judge that simply because most people's reactions to something surprising isn't that positive. Most people go, huh? What do you mean? <laughs> no, that's not right. No, you can't be right. That sort of stuff. So you know. So uh, I mean, I think the work on differentiation and the fact of how little that matters. And I can't claim full credit for that. I've done a part of it, but it's been an ongoing. Andrew Ehrenberg started it. Byron's continued it. I've continued it. And we've all tackled it in different forms. So, you know, Andrew very much from an advertising perspective, Byron from a biobehaviour perspective, me more from a memory perspective. But all tells the same story that this thing that we've had as part of the marketing lexicon for a long piece of time, really doesn't matter that much. It's not totally unimportant. And there, if you can have something that genuinely is something you can sell that nothing, no one else in the category can that consumers value, great. All the more power to you. It's just the chasing of that leads to an ineffectual use of resources and a missing of other opportunities. So that's probably the area where I'd go in terms of changing marketing thinking. That and then presenting the alternative of mental availability is probably it. But I've also had some other fun findings along the way that I've just enjoyed just for fun. Good. I, I totally agree with you, by on the distinctiveness. But, and I think it's a trap marketers fall into quite naturally, which is you're looking for the point of difference that makes your brand stand out to your competitors. And we're, you know, as brand managers, we're overexposed to our own category. You know, we spend all the time looking at the shelf mm-hmm. and doing research and thinking about it. So, you know, I might invent, you know, I, I'm the only low sugar raspberry sparkling flavored drink in a 300 mil, not a 500 mil available in Waitrose. You know, we, we you know, you get segmented down and you go, well, I'm really, you know, and we sort of miss the point. No one can see us. No one remembers us and, and so on. So I, it's really powerful, really, really powerful. Well, let's jump into the book and maybe start with why. So what inspired the book in the first place? Well, I, when I first started out, when we were at the Marketing Science Centre way back when, we basically to raise money to do our fundamental R&D, we operated like a, a boutique market research agency. And we did, as most people do, took the briefs that came our way. And you know, part of the area we're building up expertise that we took in was actually brand health tracking. And I managed some trackers for various organisations in that time. And so I was exposed to the practicalities and the difficulties of operating with them. And and they made me very dissatisfied as a researcher of all the things I didn't know and the sense that I was just kind of flying a bit blind sometimes and, you know, as naturally, when you first start out, you think, is it just me and everyone else knows stuff and I'm just inexperienced and don't know what I'm doing? And then over time, you realise, no, everybody's actually in the same boat and everyone else is pretty much as clueless. So that then led me to do two things. The first is it is how then things like my working category entry points, distinctive assets, to fill the gaps that I felt were not currently served well by trackers. So when I look at brand attribute lists, I go... Well, first of all, you know, you see them across different, they're all the same. And then some of them attributes, I'm like, why is this being tracked? And then I think about well, what's not here and realise that the buyer was really underrepresented in this. And then the second thing I did was we had researchers coming in. So every year we take on researchers and that start doing a master's by research as part of their marketing scientist training program. And they need topics to research. And so I just basically broke up the tracker into parts. And so someone would come and say, hey, looking for a topic. And I said, how about brand awareness? I want to look into that. And so I had someone do work on fundamental work on brand awareness. Someone else look at how can we measure usage better? Because I would talk to people about usage in there. I'd be like, oh, so do you collect brand buying in your tracker? And I go, yeah, but no one, no one trusts that information. No one believes it. I'd be like, so why are you collecting it? Oh, no, we have to have it in there, but just we just don't report on it and we don't pay any attention to it. And I'd be like, okay, that seems weird, but we'll That's so that. true. I've, just, I've seen a lot of that. Yeah. Part of the problem I've personally found is that 
that it is quite a lag between when something happens in market and when it's picked up in the tracker. I mean, mm-hmm. we uh, did a big reformulation that had quite a backlash on a brand I was working on. And it was quite a dramatic moment for the brand, but it was six months until I saw it impact on our on, on our brand equity. And I think that's part of the challenge is marketers run under so much short-term pressure. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it's so important to have brand trackers. And yet, be- because there's that delay, sometimes it means it can get it can mm-hmm. get missed yeah. or forgotten, which is wrong, of course. But well, what it means is that there's there are some short-term things you need to put in. So when you put in a new piece of communication, I think it's worthwhile doing some tests to see. Does this have the best chance of doing it? Because, yeah, you can pretest, but cut through and branding are really hard to pretest for because they're not in natural environments. And then any pretesting that involves forced choice doesn't really get you a sense of branding because the art and science of branding is being able to cut through when people are not paying attention. If you require full attention for your branding to get through, you've already failed. So the tracker doesn't give you all your information. It is has a specific purpose that does that. When you're talking about like shifts in the market, so something happens that you worry might have a negative consequence, then yes, there are online forums you can look at that do that and can draw on. But there's limitations in using online forums because they will only talk when there is something unusual to talk about, whereas most memories sit in our heads normally and we don't share them with the world. So that's where you need a tracker to pick up the ordinary, the everyday, the sort of the, the memories that are there. And then you have other mechanisms to pick up when you change, when you do something unusual, when there's something risk associated with it. So I think when people try to make their tracker be the fount of all knowledge of marketing effectiveness, that's when you get into trouble because then you try to stuff it with all these measures that don't actually make yeah. any sense. Yeah, it makes make a lot of sense. I, mean, I want to go. I want to start at the beginning of the book, and, and this is going to sound so flipping obvious. And again, I, I kind of kick myself. Well, why, why didn't I think about it like this? But you start with the laws of growth, don't you? Mm-hmm. And you cover three. And it seems so obvious to go, well, why wouldn't you build a tracker to reflect how you're doing against the proven laws of growth, right? I, I know it sounds like very obvious, but I hadn't thought about it like that. But just, just for, for everyone listening, remind us of the, the, the three laws you talk about and their importance because each of them has a quite a clear kind of action that sits behind it mm-hmm. as well. Yes, yes. I will say some people did say, why have you got this chapter at the beginning of your book? Why do you need this? But to me, it's really important because it sets the scene. And it does separate out trackers that maybe pay lip service to the law of growth rather than ones that really do actually really take it to heart because the three laws I chose to go through, and I, I mean, I could have thrown a few more in, but this isn't a laws of growth book. It is using the knowledge from it. There are other books you can go to for that. But yeah, so the first thing is the brand user profiles law. It's not the first law I talk about, but it's the first one in terms of the sort of mantra that I've put forward for how you do this. And that just simply says that the profile of your brand's customer base should and probably will reflect that of the category. And that if you actually have anything that skews from the category buyer base, you should ask yourself not so much why you're succeeding, but why are you failing in some particular segments? And sometimes brands do that as a deliberate choice. You know, if you have an insurance company that only sells to people over the age of 50, yeah, they're going to have a shortfall in younger category buyers. But that's a, that's a business decision they've made. It will limit their growth because they can only maximum get 100% of the over 50s market. So, yeah, so first of all, understanding that. And so that affects your sample. You know, don't fool yourself with your target market and don't skew your sample. Well, actually, it's the second law that comes in, which is the duplication of purchase law. And that affects the sort of brands that you're comparing yourself against because that tells us that brands compete with other brands in line with competitor share. So what that means is no matter where you are in the market, you share more customers with big brands and fewer customers with small brands. Yes, there are exceptions, but that's the general pattern. And so what that means is when you're talking about your brand list, don't go for lookalikes, go for the big brands, the medium brands, and a representative selection of small brands, as well as your brands, of course. And so they all speak to design for the category, which is the first part of the mantra. And that's important. I I put it this way. Imagine you've got your questionnaire and you go knock on the door of your competitors, a bigger competitor, a smaller competitor, and say, hey, here's a questionnaire. Would you like to use it? If they would look at it, review it and go, yeah, actually, this would be good. Thanks. Then you're on track. If they look at it and go, oh, no, I wouldn't ask that question. wouldn't know that. I'm not sure about that. Then maybe you should rethink what are those questions that you're asking 
and have you biased the survey in some way? And the reason you want to do that is because no matter where you are, if you're small, you want to get bigger. You don't want to have to change your tracker when you become a big brand. If you're big, it's the small brands that are usually nibbling against you. So you want to know how well they're doing or you might launch a new brand. So you want to put them in. And then double jeopardy, good old double jeopardy, is that small brands are penalised twice. They have many few users who are slightly less loyal. And that just tells us that we need to make sure we calibrate our metrics for brand size. It's not one size fits all. Because if we do that, then as a big brand, we get fat, complacent and happy because we always look good. But it's not a matter of whether you look good compared to other brands. It's are you getting as you should or better for a brand of your size? And if you're a small brand, it's always miserable and you might end up cutting things that are working because they're not giving you the scores of a big brand, but they're giving you the scores of a better brand than what you are. It's so true because, you know, having worked in marketing many years, like you always think your brand is more unique than it actually is. You always think your buyers are more, you know, more loyal or, or heavier than you think sort of thing. So I love the fact you start there because you, you really kind of set up you know, you really challenge, I think, a lot of biases that marketers have when they're, when they're thinking about, you know, also the temptation to flatter yourself. Well, we're just going to look at this subcategory or we're just going to look at buyers that fit this particular profile. And then you're sort of cheating, right? Because mm-hmm. you're kind of flattering yourself with a better score that doesn't really tell you what you need to know to grow. So love it. Really good. I want to talk about brand awareness because this is another fun topic, right? And it seems like, I don't know, marketers pick the definition of brand awareness that makes them look good. You know, is it prompted, unprompted, spontaneous, top of mind, all that sort of thing. What are the main types of brand awareness and, and what would you recommend the, the best way to measure brand awareness? Well, uh, brand awareness was a really interesting one because one, I got, let's say, bemused and a little bit worried. Some work that London Business School professor Tim Ambler did back in, I think it was about 2003 I read it, where he did a survey of boards and brand health metrics were reaching boards and brand awareness was the most common metric that reached boards. And I went, okay, given we don't really know much about what moves brand away, that struck me as really scary that marketers were putting their board credibility to a measure that really wasn't fully understood. And then that, that led me to ask a couple of questions like, first of all, it's been around so long, why wasn't it fully understood? And secondly, how can we understand it more? So that's why we started doing some R&D. And I like and I, I love a good analogy. If you ever read my books, I've read a lot of analogies. Um, and um, yeah, some of, well, I love an analogy. Some of them are good, is probably a better way to put it. When I first started working with brand health measures and thinking about this book, my original idea for how you sort of think about these brand health measures was a family. And a, a brand awareness I liken to grandpa, who's, you know, not hearing pretty well, a little bit doddery, but he's been around a long time. And When he speaks, people listen and no one dares question it because the idea of questioning brand awareness, people are like, but, but no, you can't. It's, it's like sort of one of those solid bedrocks. It's like, it's like criticizing grandpa, but sometimes we have to. And the reason is because we have turned brand awareness into something it wasn't originally meant to be. So there's two forms of brand awareness, two reasons for tracking it. One is to, as a category identifier. So it says it checks that people know basically what you sell. And that's the original form of brand awareness and that makes perfect sense. The second form is to use it as a proxy of an or as a measure of an ease of retrieval. And that's where we get into trouble because the ideas of that for brand awareness were actually developed in a time before we'd really un- integrated in how memory works and how we retrieve from memory. When you understand that, you realize we don't just use one cue. And we don't just use a category queue. And once you start looking at the data and realizing how do people retrieve things and the range of cues they use, and that's where the category entry points comes into it. But then also that the retrieval is shaped by the queue. And so one queue can't represent all of the different category entry points because as a brand, you can score well on one category entry point and poorly on another. And that's the nature of how our memories work. So... If you're going to track brand awareness, the best use of it is as a category identifier. 
And then if you look at in that, you have to you ask yourself, okay, so I've got two groups of people out there broadly. So this is the middle part of the mantra, analyze for the buyer. So I've got people who've bought me and people who haven't. Do I really need to test prompted brand awareness amongst people who've bought me? Probably not. Very good point. Because they've <laughs> probably worked out what you sell by virtue of habit. Now, if you enter into a new category, you might need to. So if you're an insurance company and you start selling pet insurance, then them just knowing your insurance company might not be enough. You might want to check that they actually do know you sell pet insurance. So, you know, as you subcategories and things are important there, but you know, it's the non-buyers that you really need to do that. So basically, if you think about it pragmatically, that takes something that looks simple, brand awareness, obvious, better to be people aware or not, turned into something complex when we have two measurement approaches and three metrics and people picking their own metric to something that's actually simple, which is one metric, which is as a category identifier, what proportion of non-buyers know that's what you sell? Very good. I like it. It's a theme that actually runs through your book is, is design for the category and and the importance of non-buyers and yeah. like buyers, right? It's it, really, really good to, to remember that. Because so, I mean, caught my attention in that, this particular chapter as well about the stability of individ- the individual level of awareness. I thought it was fascinating. One of the brands I used to manage actually was on your list, which made me smile. But top of mind awareness was only, te- I think it was 10% of it, of the people that were top of mind, if I've understood this correctly, were the same mm-hmm. as the previous sample. Yep. And even the brand leader in, in the soft drink category that we referred to, I think was in maybe low 70s and a mm-hmm. very, very well-established brand as well. That was quite surprising, yeah. you know, as an insight. Well, actually, uh, it's not that surprising. George Day in 1970 actually really? reported this for appliances, that there was an instability in brand awareness. So, you know, and because people won't believe something in the 1970s unless they see it more <laughs> recently and we've done replications one of our researchers and she did a whole phd looking at the stability of responses to various things and and at one level i remember when i first discovered this because it this is a factor of all brand perceptions it's not even just unprompted awareness i first went oh my god does that mean this whole thing is rubbish and we should just throw it away and start again but actually it's really just about the probabilistic nature of memory and understanding that any one question doesn't give us everything from memory. It gives us a subset. And then if we ask the question again, we get another subset. And there's some overlap, so there are some responses repeated, but there are also some new. And when you understand that, you go, okay, so how I use this information I don't use this information, for example, to segment the market. I don't segment people based on one survey um, perceptual responses because that's really faulty. It's an unreliable measure. But it is useful because it tells us, and this is why I like a free choice, pick any prompted approach to measuring brand perceptions, is because it replicates that probabilistic process of memory, even though on face value there's no reason why it should. The fact that we give people all the brands and thing, people could go through and tick all of them or tick randomly and sort of stuff, but they don't actually. There's a beautiful underlying patterns that come when people respond to that. And so that tells me people are giving me real associations when they do mm. this. Yeah, really, really good point. Right, we're going, we're going to take a little detour here. So to talk about Donald Trump's hair. So bear with me on this one. So we did a study at System One a few years ago, looking at the presidential candidates mm-hmm. of the election and which distinctive assets they're associated with, and also which campaign slogans came to mind associated with each each individual. And there were a couple of really funny findings, actually, which won't be a surprise to you, I should say. But anyway, but a funny way of illustrating some of the points. Donald Trump's hair was a more distinctive asset than any other identifiable feature of any mm-hmm. of the candidates by a long way. The second thing, Donald Trump was associated with the other candidates' strap lines more than any of the other candidates to their own. Mm-hmm. Because he was so dominant in the category, all the, sorry, we're talking about the Republican nomination now. So mm-hmm. it's not him versus Hillary, but it's him versus mm-hmm. all the other candidates running for the, running for the Republican nomination. Because he was so well known that when people asked the question, so I mean, make America great obviously was the thing he was associated with. But even when we asked in the survey, you know, what do you, you know, what, what do you associate Donald Trump with? The, the, the strap lines of the other candidates came up more for him than came up for all the other candidates for themselves, which I think was the effect of kind of his, you know, his overall fame that he would pick up that as well. Yeah. So, so you're saying you measured it by the 
tagline? Uh, well, which which taglines? Which of these taglines do you do associate with which politician? And what we mm-hmm. found is that actually, for the other candidates' taglines, more people put Donald Trump for mm-hmm. their taglines than put the politician for whom it was. And that was unprompted. Unprompted. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So yeah. So what you're getting that? So yeah. So uh, but I imagine overall it was pretty low. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah, the yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. So what you're just getting yeah. there is a little bit of wobble and confusion because whenever you ask surveys, you've got to remember that people who take surveys are nice people. They want to give you a right answer if they can. So you're always going to get a little bit of confusion in there, which is why when even when we with distinctive assets with uniqueness, while I'd love 100%, I'm realistic that if you get 90%, you're doing good because there's always going to be a few that – you know, we'll, we'll just give an answer in there. So that's what I think you're getting there. And to some extent, he does have a little bit of he will parody anything that becomes successful. So there might be a little bit of that factor in yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. When we're talking about brand attributes, there's quite a lot of different types of brand attributes, aren't there? So what are the different types of brand attributes and which ones would be more important than other ones mm-hmm. to use in, our, in a survey? So there are a lot of typologies about brand attributes, but most of them are based on the attributes themselves. So they're about the wording of them, what they are. So, you know, there's things like hedonic versus utilitarian, which speak to the nature of the attributes and things like that. So we decided to take a different approach and go, well, why don't we look at how they're used by buyers in order to classify attributes? So in there, there are three basic roles. The first is to think of options to buy, attract as a retrieval queue. That's what I commonly call category entry points. The second are... When you've got multiple options salient at the same time, which we commonly do have because our brain can, you know, we have working memory that can have multiple concepts at a time, we might need some criteria to select between them. So then the brands themselves can be evaluated on things. So some evaluation criteria. A lot of textbooks overplay this evaluation process. The reality is sometimes it doesn't happen because we can also use things like physical availability to choose. So I might think of three, you know, I might leave here, go, I'm going to have something to eat, think of three options and go, ah, there's the one right in front of me, I'm going there. And in that case, they were all equally fine options. It was just the most physically close. So not always is evaluation in there, but it can play a role. And also it can play a role in the discounting. So you might not buy the most trustworthy brand, but if you have some doubts about it, you might just cull that in favour of the ones you don't have any doubt doubts about. Um, and then the third are distinctive assets, things used to identify the brand. And that's what we call distinctive assets. So they have a specific role to play because they're you know, just brand cues. And they also evoke the brand, but they have a, a, a different role than the category entry points. And back to the point you made earlier, again, common theme, design for the category. How much should we pick uh, category attributes as well as brand attributes? If you, Well, I don't see a difference because a brand attribute – so, well, if you're talking about distinctive assets, so put them aside because I actually don't think they should be part of a tracker. I think they need their own uh, – because they have a specific measurement approach and timing of how you do that, I actually don't recommend them as part of a tracker. I understand for efficiency some people might want to put them in, but – then you have to do that with special considerations because the unprompted measurement, you can't do it before any other brands are provided. But of the others in terms of brand attributes, I don't understand why you would pick something that would not be useful from a category perspective. The exception to that is I do appreciate there are some attributes you might track for other things. So you might track something on diversity or you know, corporate reputation type attributes because that's a different triple bottom line reporting, what you're, those sorts of things. I do allow for that presence in there, but I think that's a different conversation of how you use those versus the things that are actually going to be influential to get your brand thought of and bought in buying situations. I was quite surprised at how many category entry points the average brand has as well. And, and I, I think this is another mm-hmm. trap that brand managers get into is you sort well, you know, you might segment the market and you might go, yeah, that's the category entry point of my brand. And then you all, you kind of go all in on one, don't you? Mm-hmm. Which is a bit of a trap because you're limiting potent, you know, potential for your brand. And um, But talk to me about that because I was quite surprised at how many category entry points there are as well. That's the- Yeah, so we, well, I mean, we do research where we go out and find category entry points for categories. And yeah, I have to put a limit on 35 
and frequently have more than that that we then take to. So we do a stage one, we identify category entry points, and a stage two where we work out the priorities. And at the end of the priorities, I like to come up with what I call the long short list, which is usually five to eight category entry points that are suitable for a brand to have. In essence, we're always talking about wider, fresher networks. Now, in reality, there's a limit on how many you can build because you've only got so much budget, people only have so much attention, and to build them, you have to have prominent co-branded moments. And there are only so many of those that you can have in any execution. You can't have a you know, 30 second ad with 20 prominent co-branded moments. Our brains can't process that much information. So you're always going to be restricted. So the question then is, which are the most valuable to do? And that's where you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot and sort of win the battle but lose the war by investing your money in something that doesn't come up very often or that's really highly competitive and lots of other brands are in that space when you don't need to. So there are ways to be able to deal with that. But yeah, the average brand, I think it ends up with about six. But remember that it's context with size. So Bigger brands tend to be known by more people for more category entry points than smaller brands. That's how, how they, they're in more evoked sets with more brands. They also have an extra advantage, which speaks to Double Jeopardy, is that they're often in evoked sets with fewer brands. And that speaks to one of the laws I don't talk about in the book, but the natural monopoly law. And that is that big brands tend to monopolize like category buyers who know very few other brands in a category. And so they come in and they themselves don't buy very much as like category buyers, but there's enough of them that as a group, they contribute a fair bit to a big brand's bottom line. Coming on to mental availability, you, you talk about how to measure mental market share. I, I love the model here. Can you talk talk us through this? Because, yeah, it's, it's, it's really smart, this. But, yeah, talk us through how you might go about kind of measuring mental market share. Yeah, well, it's just I wrote a paper quite a while ago that I where I likened brand associations to distribution outlets in the mind. That was the title of it. And that was before I even thought about this idea of mental market share, but it was just me thinking about the fact that these are basically mental doorways that people are going in to access the brand. And so when you take that analogy then further, and that, and I had a parallel thought, and that is that I was seeing all these beautiful patterns in buying behavior. And yet I was working in a branding space where there was all these papers saying, oh, it's chaotic and you can do anything and sort of stuff. And I went, it doesn't really make sense to me. Why would there be chaos, but yet beautiful patterns? Maybe we just haven't been looking at memories properly. And so when we start to look at memories from a pattern perspective, that's when we start to see the things that were the underpinning for this idea of mental market share to say, well, if we treat brands and category entry points as distribution points in the mind, we can create a mental market share by we imagine this universe of brands and category entry points and you can know what share of these associations you have just like you can know what share of sales you have by collecting all of the sales from all the distribution outlets and seeing, well, we got X percent, this other brand got this and this. And then you take that down to then what are the underpinnings of that and then you have mental penetration, which is the proportion of people who link your brand to at least one category entry point. So that's analogous to two things. One is penetration as a brand. So those who are familiar with that, it's that but in memory form. But it's also a more sophisticated awareness measure because I'm taking it from just the category queue to I'm giving you, say, 20 opportunities to link my brand to a category entry point. I'm giving you the brand. I'm giving you the category entry point. If after 20 opportunities I'm not still registering, I think the chance of you thinking of me next time you're in a buying situation is really, really low. It's not impossible because something might happen in store or online that suddenly brings your brand to my attention, but that's physical availability working, not mental availability. Then we have network size, which speaks to that. So that speaks to the how many people can think of my brand. Then we want to know how often, and that's network size, which is of those with mental penetration, how many category entry points they have linked to it. And then the third metric is share of mind, which is 
of the people who have me in their brains, how much space am I taking up? And share of mind is particularly important if you're a big brand because usually when you're declining, that's where we see it first, that it's not that you're fallen off the wagon and people don't think of you at all because it's really hard to remove a brand totally from memory. But what happens is just nibbling away, slowly competitors are just getting in there and you're just fewer people, slightly less often. You're actually present. And over time, that just then erodes sales. It's really fascinating as you describe it because it, it, it re, you know, we're very familiar with taking that approach to physical availability, right? What's mm-hmm. my share within cafes or supermarkets yep. and, and, you know, that sort of thing. And it, it really does translate neatly quite cleverly, doesn't it, over to mental availability. So, I'll, mm-hmm. yeah, really neat. Love I love like a good that. analogy. Yeah, I know. You do. You do. And, and it plays out. I found that, that chapter fascinating, actually. And I hadn't thought about mental availability in quite the same way before like physical availability as you break it down it makes sense you know share of you know minds and so on can we talk about brand love it made me smile this chapter i have to say but you know going back to analogies i'm the proud owner of a new puppy 16 weeks old teddy and uh, obviously you know the family have fallen in love with him and it does seem sometimes that brands want to have a relationship a bit like I have with Teddy, don't they? But uh, it's, it's not necessarily the case, is it? Well, I, I mean, I put it out. I mean, I have a, I have a, a Dashan with attachment issues. When I read that list, I reckon, because I know that he has attachment issues, but he would sell me for food in a second because <laughs> he also has food issues. So I'm like, God, even Alf wouldn't fit this criteria. I mean, yeah, we've just got to get real. It doesn't make any sense. It's one of those things where you go, Really? You really want to go there? Think about it. So um, when I did my A to Z of brand health tracking, I got to L and it was around Valentine's Day and I was kind of like, I should have this as brand love, but what can I possibly say about brand love I hadn't said before? So that's why I composed a song instead. Brilliant. Now, I really enjoyed that series. That, that was that was a great way to bring it to life. Absolutely brilliant. Let's talk about category purchase frequency as well. I mean, this is kind of going back to what I was talking about earlier, actually, in that most people's categories are bought a lot less frequently, aren't they, than people think they are. I mean, it was a real shock, actually. I know, I know um, when I did the did the sums on uh, the leading energy drink as well, I mean, I, I suppose if you just survey, how many times do you think people drink this energy drink a year? They'd probably go 10, 20, 30, you know, because people in their heads think, well, probably once a week, every other week. And then you realize it's two and <laughs> you just go really <laughs> sort of thing it's, it's going back to the kind of what surprises the audience that's one i found in you know in, in my career always shocks people you did a poll you know and mm-hmm. then what you know okay put your hands up what do you think yeah. it's always a, always a shock isn't it well you used to have this term fast moving consumer goods ironically which gave that impression <laughs> but you go actually the vast majority of people buy toilet cleaner once a year and so you go it's not really fast Moving and and so, but this is this speaks to so when people talk about different categories and they go, well, it, it holds for packaged goods. How do you know it's going to hold for durables? They go, well, because there's a lot of packaged goods that if you look at how often people bought them, they look like durable buying patterns because they bought so infrequently. So it's actually these categories are not that different no. from each other. Yeah, no, it's a real surprise. Yeah, yeah. How often do you buy a toaster or something? I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know. How often do you go on holiday? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people go on yeah. holidays quite frequently, yeah. probably more often than they buy toilet cleaner. <laughs> there you go. We, we, we touched on it a bit before. Um, what, because again, go, you know, put myself in the brand manager's shoes, you're desperate to find out how did my ad campaign do? And presumably like my ad campaign has transformed all my brand metrics overnight, you know, which is a classic one. I think we're all overexposed to our own marketing, aren't we? And assume that everyone's going to wake up and go, wow, now I've seen the ad. I'm going to, you know, how would you, what would your advice be about measuring the impact of marketing on a brand? So again, I will separate out the, the, the measurement to make sure you're giving the marketing activity the best chance of success that it has those ingredients it can get attention it's 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 well branded it has a clear message and it's you know able to to do stuff and then you've got to distribute it so you've got the media plan in place to make sure that this attention grabbing well branded clear message thing is out there so once you've got those ingredients in place then it's a distribution issue and the level of distribution is going to affect how much you're going to see the impact in your tracker and people's brains. And this was actually one of the ironic things that used to define media spend. We discovered because people would go, oh, no, no, I have to spend a minimum amount to get any impact from advertising. And for a while there, we're kind of like, 
Huh? Think about that makes a sense. If I show you an ad and only you, you can act on it. You don't yeah. wait for a couple of hundred thousand other people to see it before you go, okay, now I'll now I'll act. Now they're spending five million. I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna pop I'm, in the shop. Go, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but and when we realized what was happening, linked back to brand tracking, is it was a minimum spend to see the result in their tracking. So yeah. the irony was the tracking was driving the media the, driving spend, the spend rather than the other way around. And we kind of like, you know, have a think about it. You know, if I only show an ad to this room, you know, I'd say to groups of people, I can affect everyone in this room. I can't affect anyone outside of this room, but that doesn't mean you all wait for that. So, yeah, so that was one of the, the ironies of, of actually doing that. So your, your sense of how much effect you're going to have on memories is going to be determined by how much reach you've had and how effective that reach has been. So that's why I do advocate having, for the bigger things that you're doing, having some way of assessing just what has been the actual reach of them, not because I think that's a definitive, this is how effective it is, but it allows you to calibrate your expectations for it. And if you have some big competitor activities, you can also see the relativities there. And it also is a way of, if it isn't working, so if you have the reach but not the branding, you can pick that up. And you can go, okay, well, we didn't pick that up earlier because you really should have. We need to fix that going forward. So, yeah, so I don't see it as like this is only the only thing you would do for communications effectiveness. For me, it's a, a calibration of your expectations of what sort of change you should see. I think it's okay because as a media buyer, you get presented with this campaign's reached 90% of the audience with 15 opportunities to see and you get lulled into false sense of security yep. as, as a brand manager you go flipping heck right everyone's going to be talking about my campaign then you look in your tracker and go oh, i just had this conversation by, with shifted someone. It by 0.1 percent you know whatever yeah. i just this had this conversation with a client because yes their media company had told them that they had reached 80 percent of the market and our results came back and said it was more like 10 yeah and they're like well it's actually no in fairness it was about 20 but Branding was only about 30%, so it cut down to eight in terms of branded reach. Yeah, and so they're like, oh, we don't know what to do here. How you know, how accurate is your approach? And I'm like, well, granted, some people could have seen it earlier and forgotten it, and it's no longer affecting them. I'm willing to accept that, but do you really think 80% was right? You know, well, it's probably the, somewhere in the middle, but I'd suggest it's more on my end of the middle than their end of the middle. I, the, the word that's doing a lot of heavy lifting is opportunity. Yeah. Right. I mean, exactly. how many messages do you get every day? And, you know, you you're amongst yeah. 2000 opportunities and you remember two, right? So particularly if you're talking digital. Yes. Definitely, yeah, because you just scroll through, don't you? Or, oh, or absolutely. Click off or, well, yeah. there's, I mean, all the studies yeah. on viewability, how accurate those figures are, sorts of things. So I would be extra sceptical in a digital sense. With now, the, the, the cunning brand manager at this point goes, ah, yes, but we drove word of mouth. And mm -hmm. you got some advice on word of mouth as well, haven't you, in this, in this chapter? Yes, one of my hobbies. Yes. Yeah, no, I became fascinated by it because it's a really interesting research area. But I do leverage off very heavily from Professor Robert East, who's a real guru in this area. Actually, having dinner with him tonight. So first of all, don't measure will somebody, could somebody, might somebody, you know, give word of mouth. Actually measure word of mouth, what people have done, because that's the thing that will have an effect. But also, often we think of word of mouth as one big thing, but depending on what you're doing depends on it's, – it's a tale of two stories where you've got the giver and the receiver that are both players here. And depending on what you're trying to assess, either of those sides is going to be more important. So there's no point in trying to measure the impact of word of mouth by asking the giver because they've got nothing to do with that. Mm. Similarly, there's no point in measuring the motives for giving word of mouth by asking the receiver because they're not going to know what's going through people's heads. So we really need to get a bit more sophisticated about this. Now, word of mouth measurement is not for every category. There are some categories that don't get a lot of conversation. So my advice always is benchmark it, see where you are, see where you're normal, and then based on the incidence of it, decide whether it's an important part of your tracker it might not be, but at least you've got sort of in technical terms that programmed. 
so that then if you do need to dial it up for whatever reason, say something happens, so say you decide, oh, we're going to do a buzz generation campaign and you do want to have word of mouth, you've got the benchmark and you can easily measure the assessment. If something goes wrong, which is another time you might want to measure, say, negative word of mouth, so say you have a product recall or you have a celebrity gone bad, that sort of thing, then yes, you can look to your word of mouth figures, but that's actually where online probably conversation is your first port of call to see, well, are people at least talking about it online in in more normal conversations? So not like your, you know, very, very, very specific chat groups and things where you've got really involved people, industry people, things like that, in just normal conversations. If it is, then you might want to, again, turn on your word of mouth measurement to see, well, who's actually receiving or giving this when I give word of mouth? Does it look like it's going to affect us in the long term? And so it's a more of a as-needs type of measure mm. rather than something you need to report on continuously. And that's, that's what I like about it because it's so easy, again, to kind of go, look, there's 100 million impressions of, of our brand being talked about around the world. And you go, well, is that a lot? Is that a little? Has it impacted the brand? Is it good? Is it bad? You know, it's easy to kind of get, you know, drawn into, you know, the social listening and and, and put yeah. too much emphasis on that. The big The big problem with that, though, is you can't tell – who the giver is or who the receiver is. And you really need that context to understand what it's about. And if you're in a brand in multiple categories, sometimes you can't even tell what category it's talking about. And mm. so that really makes it hard for it to be usable. So, yeah, it's a whole chapter because that, that was one of the things that the publisher actually said. I thought there'd be more on online stuff in here. And I thought, well, it's not very good, but how do I put that in there in a way? So that's why, and and my co-author, we wrote about the use of online when it doesn't work. And it doesn't work for most brand health tracking, but there are some situations where it does work. So we try to highlight those. So if you understand, no data source is perfect, but if you understand its limitations, you can understand where sometimes those limitations can be a superpower. Yeah, that's good advice. Let's let's end on fiscal availability, as you do in the book, by the way. I remember years ago launching new products and doubling distribution, and it also doubled penetration and awareness, of course. So, you know, obviously the two things are kind of linked together. And, you know, as, as you talk about the job of fiscal availability is to be easy to find and easy to buy. So what impact would physical availability have on your brand tracking uh, mm. measures as well? Because must I presume there's a link between the two. Okay, so, well... So one thing I'll say is that often in brand health tracking, you see some physical availability attributes sneak in. They're a waste of time. Don't do them. Just as much as word of mouth attributes. So, you know, measuring which brands have you heard people talking about, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. Don't do it. There are some really useful physical availability metrics to have. They're best sourced outside of the tracker. The exception is... Only from a memory measurement perspective, not so much for use in a tracker, is prominence of shopping distinctive assets. Those are things you have to get from memory you can't get from the environment. Now, in terms of physical availability's impact on mental availability, if you double physical availability, what happens to mental availability? The challenge you have is that a lot of stuff happens in physical availability that people don't notice. So the vast majority of new brands that get launched, you don't notice. Mm. The vast majority of pack changes, the vast majority of you know, brands being on a supermarket shelf or not, you haven't noticed. So then that's the challenge is how do we get things to cut through and why you can't just rely on physical availability. You know, Some people have gone, well, why don't we just worry about in-store and not worry about advertising out of store? You've got to get the brain ready such that when they're in an environment where there's lots of things going on, you have that advantage. You're something that they screen in. And that's what a lot of our marketing activity out of store is for. Because if you're waiting to in-store, that's a highly cluttered environment, really hard for anything to cut through. So that's why distinctive assets and stuff have to be built outside, built outside, not just on pack in shelf. And why there can be things on pack, and I'm talking about packaged goods here, but it can be logos and things as well, that have been there for ages and no one's noticed. Even buyers haven't noticed them because they haven't stood out, haven't been necessary. I mean, to me, mental and physical availability are equally important and go hand in hand, but they both rely on each other in that mental availability at its best allows physical availability to convert into sales and physical availability at its best 
allows your mental availability to convert into sales. Because if you have the best ad campaign in the world and you have crap physical availability, you're not going to see it in your bottom line. Mm. And that's a disappointment because it means that then, you know, your creative work might not be recognised because people might might have been a good campaign but, you know, no one could find the brand in store and or no one could work out how to navigate the website to buy that insurance product and so you lost out for it and it's not recognising each. So to me they're equally important. They do fit into each other but when we're measuring things going on in people's brains, the feedback from physical availability is post hoc. So yeah. you get the distribution after buyers have gone in, noticed mm. it, bought it, then you survey them. It's not because of the distribution. It's because they have become buyers that it changes their memory. The idea that the passive observation in shelf will have a big impact on people's memories doesn't make sense simply because we also know price promotions don't have a legacy, a memory legacy. So why would another facing or another skew on a shelf have a deep memory legacy? And circle back to the beginning of the conversation as well, presumably that's also why distinctive assets are so important because they're connecting the two things together, right? So mm-hmm. they're enabling you to remember the mental availability that you was established out of the store when you walk into the store and see the parrot or whatever it is. Well, that's, you know, yeah. It's triggering the, the mental availability, isn't it? Well, that's why we talk about shopping distinctive assets because the beauty of shopping distinctive assets is that you can and should use them in your advertising and they also help in store. So if you're a brand starting out, you don't have any distinctive assets and you're going, where should I start? Shopping distinctive assets are the ones I would start with. I would start with one of those and then I would pick something that was very different to that so you have immediate diversity. Yeah. So you might pick a pack style and a tagline or you might pick a logo and, well, a tagline, I'm trying to think of something that's very different from a visual, but basically tapping in. I was going to say an audio asset, but they tend to come later down the yeah. line. Yeah, great. Well, that's top advice to end on, I think. There you go. Thank you very much, Jenny. That's a pleasure. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to the Uncensored CMO. It's a real pleasure having you with me. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you'd like to never miss an episode again, please do go and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. I also have a YouTube channel as well, Uncensored CMO. Go and check me out over there and you can see all the episodes in uh, full glorious Technovision as well. If you want to leave me a review, I would love it. It's great to get reviews, um, obviously five star being the best. And if you want to follow me, I'm over on LinkedIn at John Evans or find me on Twitter at Uncensored CMO. Thanks for joining me and see you next time.